0: Asked your parents for something and they said, no, you cannot have it. Or they told you that you couldn't do something that you wanted to do and you said these words, that's not fair. Have you ever said those words? I bet most of you have said them. Or you've been out playing with friends in the neighborhood or co-op or whatever and somebody just didn't treat you well or didn't, you thought, didn't play by the rules and you came, I hate Johnny. I just really hate Susie because of how they treated me. Now, we as parents, adults, kind of do the same thing. You've got a very busy day, it's already too full, and you get a phone call interrupting your day. It takes a whole hour out of what you needed to do, or even worse, the dishwasher breaks right at supper time, and and you said, I don't need this now. I don't need this. You realize when we say, that's not fair. Or we say, I don't need this, which we're really as parents saying that's not fair. To whom and of whom you are speaking? You're speaking to and about the sovereign God. We're just saying that he foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. Now we believe that as Reformed people. But so often our response in the midst of trials and troubles is a murmuring complaint. I don't need this now obviously you did need it because he sent it. It's not fair, but obviously it's very fair because the Lord God ordained it. So we come this morning to learn from the scriptures by the Holy Spirit exactly how we are to respond to the trials of our lives. Set the scene. Remember now what we've Done in the first two sermons, we looked at Job, both in his uh, his piety before God, his public piety. This man proclaimed by God to be upright, uh, blameless, turning from evil, or hating, fearing God and turning from evil. A man about whom God had put a fence and a hedge, and had prospered all that he had done uh, domestically and in the public arena, and and particularly in his family. And then we saw last week how. Satan comes in the midst of the counsel of God for the very purpose of to give an accounting, but God is the one who draws attention to Job. You see, it was God who initiated the whole process. You, you must always remember that throughout this entire book. God is the one who put Job out there as bait for Satan, but more importantly, as his champion and as a figure, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of those great mysteries of providence. God permits Satan to do what Satan wants to do. But even there, you'll notice that Satan understands the sovereignty of God. Satan couldn't lay a finger on Job, couldn't tempt Job, unless God permitted him to do so. So God kept some of the fence up. He said, you can have everything about him, his possessions, his family, but don't touch his life. So Satan goes out and makes his plans. Now, I don't think these plans happened immediately because there was a lot of planning he had to do. It probably was a satanic council. And they talked through now the best ways to uh, afflict Job and to tempt him and to bring him to a point where he would curse God. So what we have here in our text is now the result of that council. What these black, evil uh, angels had thought in all of their dark wisdom would be the best way to bring Job to deny God. So here I want to show you that uh, the Spirit is teaching you and me how to respond to grievous trials and temptations. The Spirit is teaching you how to respond to grievous trials and temptations. I'm going to consider two things. Text breaks itself up quite easily. We see the attack of the devils and the response of the believer. Attack of the devils and the response of the believer. Well, the section with the attack is the major part of the text. On the day when his sons and daughters, verse 13, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing the donkeys, feeding beside them, and the Sabians attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, and we get this list then, fire from heaven, then the attack of the Chaldeans, and then the tornado that destroyed all of Job's children. As we consider the details of this attack on Satan, um, you'll note that there were two that were at the hands of men, and two were what we would call natural calamities. One writer calls them the four messengers of misfortune. That's what they were, the four messengers of misfortune. Well, we see two attacks by men. We first have the Sabians who lived east-southeast of the land of Uz, where Job was, and they attack, um, took all of the oxen and donkeys, killed all of Job's herdsmen, except for Oh, he's, he's so wise in his blackness. One servant who escapes as a messenger, immediately to bring this word to Job. And then there's the Chaldeans in verse seventeen, and uh, they lived to the uh, the northeast of Job, and they uh, formed great tactic, uh, three bands to sweep down upon. Uh, Job's servants, and they took all of the camels, killed all of the servants by the sword. Satan allowed one man to escape. Then we have the two natural calamities. And so the second thing that's recorded here in verse 16 is that there was a lightning strike, that the fire of God fell from heaven. And you remember that, that God is, is the author of all things. He is the author of light, lightning. Um, the fire of God fell from heaven Probably one of those lightning strikes you read about that comes down and leaps across the ground horizontally. And killed all the sheep and all the shepherds. Except one. Who escaped. And then we have the uh, great wind. This tornado type wind that roars across the wilderness. Took the four corners of the house. You can just see it twisting it around and bringing it to rubble. Killed all ten of Job's children and whatever other children they themselves would have had perhaps. Well, that's what went on. Now, as we look at just the bare facts here, let me remind you that all this is the handiwork of the devil. Now, it's easier for us to understand uh, the attacks of men. Now, Job has lived in, in peace and prosperity for decades in front of his neighbors, but now this orchestrated event the devils go and they first they tempt the Sabians while they're doing that. Others are over here tempting the Chaldeans. You know, look at Job. He's down there by himself. He's got all of this wealth. All you would have to do is come into his country from the south, east, and kill his, his herdsmen, and you could have all of that wealth. And then, and meanwhile, other demons are up here saying the same thing to the Chaldeans. Look, look there, it's, it's just it's easy. It's just pickings. All you have to do is, in your wisdom, put together a military tactic and, and come at a three-pronged attack and, and capture all of his possessions and kill all of his servants. You see, it's Satan who's behind this. He was stirring up the, the lust, the envy, the covetousness, the, the wickedness of wicked men. We understand that. What is a bit more frightful is that God gave him also power, limited power, but power over natural calamity. It's called a fire of God, but we know that it was sent by Satan. That God permitted Satan to control this lightning. God alone makes lightning. Control this lightning and uh, direct it in this way in his own malignity, and destroy all of the sheep and the shepherds. And then God allows Satan to make this great tornado-like storm that roars across the wilderness and destroys the house with all of his sons and daughters. Just beware, you see, I mentioned it last week, of the malice hatefulness, the murderous heart of this fiend, But also understand, not only is he behind all these evil occurrences. We sit here today, a few days after an imperialist tyrant invades a, a, an innocent country, and uh, as almost daily, Christians are being put to death by, by Muslims and We need to understand that when these things happen, they're not disconnected events. Satan is a master strategist. In these satanic councils, it's all part of a grand plan. If you've not read it, read Milton's Paradise Lost. I think he beautifully captures the scheme, the grand plan that is going on here. And everything that occurs of an evil nature is part of his grand plan. I don't normally, and I encourage the students never to do it, well, almost never, unless there's a good cause, and that is read a quotation in the pulpit. But I can't say it better than James Henley Thornwell got made this point. The kingdom of Satan's deeds of wickedness are not sudden, spasmodic, extemporaneous, Effusions, outpourings of desperate, impotent malice. They're parts of a plan, a great comprehensive scheme conceived by a mastermind and adjusted with exquisite skill for extinguishing the glory of God. The consolidated empire for so many centuries of paganism, the persecuting edicts of imperial Rome, the rise and brilliant success of Mohammedism, the corruptions of the papacy, The widespread desolations of modern infidelity can never be adequately understood without contemplating them as parts of an organized system of evil, of which the gigantic intellect of the devil is the author. While men have been guilty and unwitting instruments, they've answered his ends and played obsequiously into his hands while they vainly suppose they were accomplishing purposes of their own. He has in his sphere a providence in imitation of that of God. And to this providence, his children and subjects are adroitly molded. They take their place and act their part under his superintending eye. You need to get the big picture, my friends. That's part of what we're seeing here. This was not simply, oh, I'll try to mess up God here. No, there's this hatred, this scheme that is millennia long of seeking to thwart the glory of God and the purposes of salvation and the victory and exaltation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you beware. Well, consider the the nature, the character of the attacks. And uh, I can describe them in four ways. In the first place, it was sudden and unexpected. We don't know the time lapse between God's permission and when Satan got all this orchestrated. But uh, Job was like a friend of mine. He answers the phone the first time. How are you doing? Life is good. Life is good. I think he would call Job that day. How are you doing? Life is good. He looks around at his prosperity, his place in the city. It's the first day of the, of the festival cycle of his sons and daughters, which bespeaks of, of family harmony and piety. I mean, life couldn't be better for Job on this day. It's in that great place of of um, ease and a proper kind of, of satisfaction that Satan attacks. You need to understand this. You've experienced it. How often you've come home from a great worship service or a time of the Lord's supper, and you're thinking, you know, man, this is good. And within 10 minutes, you fall into some sin. You see, he comes suddenly, unexpectedly. That's why we're told to watch. Now, the second thing that we see here is that the attack was comprehensive. I mean, God said don't touch his body, but he took everything else. He took his, his possessions, he took his servants, he took his children. There was nothing left to Job, you understand that? It'd be like the man during the Great Depression that goes to bed, a multi-millionaire on Monday night, and gets up Tuesday morning and he is absolutely broke, he's going to lose his house and everything he has. That's a little bit like Job, everything was taken away from him. But think about the relentlessness of this. I tried to read it in a way that you would grasp something of what Job was feeling. So he's there. And he gets the first message about the Sabians. And perhaps at that, when he sits down and just, oh, man, maybe he's already sitting. Uh, but he, he can't even begin to digest. He can't even begin to direct his attention to God. I mean, right there, right on the heels of the first messenger is the second messenger. And before he can digest that, there's the third messenger. And then the most awful message about his children, one upon the other. Relentless attacks designed to beat him down. I know a man that once almost drowned in the Gulf of Mexico. And the experience was something like you'd come up and you, as you gasp for air, the next wave would push you back down. You've been there maybe? You, you breathe, you look for a, a sigh, and the next wave knocks you down. That's Joe. Knock one, knock two, knock three. Knock him out. That was Satan's attempt in this unrelenting. And then notice as well, it's, it's climactic nature. A robber comes into your house and you'll say, take everything, just leave my wife and children alone, okay? And we are that way, aren't we? We will sacrifice everything for our family. You see, Job didn't, wasn't left with the family. Satan didn't leave Job, his children. There's the building in this fiendish, climactic manner as Job is gasping and all your children are dead and all your servants, because Job would have been a righteous, as a righteous man, would have loved his servants as well as his children. You see, that is, that's the nature of, of the attack, but you can't stop there. We need to understand that the relationship of trials and temptation. Because in the trials always will come a temptation. We read about that in James. Now, the temptation is always going to be to do it the devil's way and the way of your lust or to obey God. So, with all of this physical and emotional attack, what do you think the devil's doing? Remember what he wants Job to do curse God and die. He's whispering. He's whispering in the ear of Job. In the mystery of providence, the devils have access to our thoughts, not to our soul. They cannot do anything to our soul, but to our thoughts. And he's whispering. Look at this, Job. Look what God has done to you, Job. See, Job understood the sovereignty of God. We'll see more of that in a minute. You have been so faithful in serving him. You've honored him in all that you do and have. And look at his return to you. He couldn't care less about you, Job. He hates you. He simply used you. Just deny him, curse him, give up, die. That's the temptation. Can you begin to imagine it? On top of all of the trial that simply laid the foil for the whispered, temptations. I doubt if there was any normal man in history that was ever tempted as Job was, particularly when we see the coup de grace next week, or in two weeks. But there's one man, our Savior, the God-man, of whom Job is a type, who was tempted uh, far beyond Job. Yes, he was attacked by his enemies. He was uh, rejected by his friends He ran away. He was condemned by the church, the state. He was despised. He was held up to contempt naked as a criminal. But you know one difference between our Savior and Job? God never rejected Job. God rejected the Savior. My God, my God, why? Have you rejected me? He was there in his human nature derelict, suffering the very pangs of hell. But See, God helps us understand his suffering by picturing Job for us, helping us to imagine what it would be like to do that? And then to recognize, oh, what my Savior did is so far beyond that. And it's all because the Triune God has loved his people. Look at the suffering of Job, the suffering of the Savior, realize this was all out of love, and it was absolutely necessary would God have have afflicted His Son in any unnecessary way. If there was any way to save His people, apart from the abject dereliction, pain, and suffering of His Son, He surely would have done so. But no, our Savior had to bear all of our sins and pay this price. He did it out of love of the triune God for his people. Do you know this triune God today as Savior? There's no more beautiful picture of him. Boys and girls, this is the God with whom you're in covenant. This is the God who loves his people so much that he would do this, and he calls on you then to love him, to believe in him, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to each of us. He shows us the splendor of his gentle beauty, this great, tender love that we might come unto Him. But because our Savior endured and won, then we know, again, that promise that on which we meditated, there's no temptation taken you, but such is common to men. And God will, with the temptation, provide a way to escape that you may be able to bear. it. Satan's going to come after you, my friends. He comes in your trials. He comes... In all of your temptations, he comes whispering in your ear what he wants you to do and how he wants you to respond. And that's why uh, the Bible teaches us we must watch and pray. He will come at us unexpectedly. He'll come to us with great fiendish wisdom and power. Watch and pray. That's why in the Lord's Prayer we're taught to pray. As I mentioned last week, lead me not into temptation, keep me from the trials. But if I fall into the trials, then keep me from the evil one, both the tempter and sin. Now you're praying that, by God's grace, every week here. But I hope you're praying that every day, not necessarily those particular words, but that God would protect you from trial and temptation and enable you to overcome through Christ Jesus. And so you must watch and pray. You must know your weaknesses because the devil knows them. As I said last week, he's a great psychologist. You must know your sins, your weaknesses, your besetting sins as you watch and pray. And wait on Christ, cling to Him, use the means of grace that you might be victorious. And so, the attack on Job. But now in the second place, we see the response of the believer I think verses 20 to 22 are some of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshiped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. We see a twofold response. In the first place, Job grieved, and then, second, he worshiped. Now, I'm glad he grieved because it teaches us also how to go through our trials, that he, um, he rose, he, he had, had uh, stood up, he had been seated, he, he, he rose, he did two things in his culture, were the, the sign of grief, he tore his robe, and he shaved his head. Now, these were in his culture signs of grief and deep mourning. And in doing so, The Holy Spirit is teaching us that God doesn't call us to be Stoics. Uh, It's not wrong to mourn and to grieve. Um, Almost half the Psalms are Psalms of lament. Uh, God does not mind our bringing our laments to Him. Even expressing them to one another is not wrong as long as we do so with moderation. We have to walk that line between beginning to murmur and complain and simply pouring out our hearts in in brokenness and pain and sorrow. Uh, Jacob was just the opposite, wasn't he? Genesis 37. So Jacob, when he heard about Joseph's supposed death, tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his loins, mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters rose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. He said, surely I'll go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. Now, we must not mourn in that way. As Paul says, we mourn as those not like the world, those who know the sure and certain hope of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and resurrection. But God gives us the freedom. He expects us to mourn the awful things that come into our lives. But Just watch that line. But then he worships. He worships. He falls to the ground in prostration before God, humbling himself before the great and glorious God. He makes a confession, and then he blesses God. He makes the confession with these very simple words. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave. The Lord's taken away. In... That expression, naked I came from of this room, and naked I shall return there. Job confesses two things. In the first place, he owns the grace of God in anything he has received. For reality is that we all come to the world with nothing, and we all leave the world with nothing. So anything that God has given us in the intervening period are simply gifts of his grace to us. Whether they be few or great. It matters not. We don't deserve them, and we've done nothing to merit them. They are from him. And so Job is saying, God's not dealt with me unfairly. He gave me these gifts. He has the freedom to take them from me, because after all, he gives me everything. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you have not received? Now, closely connected with these words is the Apostle Paul teaches us there's a matter of contentment with what God does do. So Paul will quote these words in 1 Timothy 6, 7, and 8, For we have brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out of it either, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Now Job, with these words, according to Paul's application of them, is also saying, I'm content with the ways of God. I recognize there's more to my life than possessions. That's what contentment is, you understand. There's more to my life than than possessions, there's more life than, than all of these things. And I can rest, I can rest in the ways of God. Now God restores, it's interesting, because Job's talking here about his spiritual inheritance at the end of the day, about eternal life. Now it's interesting insight that I got from one of our graduates, that at, at the time of restoration, God doubled everything that Job had lost, except one thing. What did God not double? Seven sons and three daughters. Now why did God not double seven sons and three daughters? Because they were not lost. Job had them in heaven. He one day would go to them because they were safe. Safe in their God. So be content, you see. Content with the ways of God. and Know that uh, there's more to life than meets the eye. There is this eternal inheritance that belongs to each one of us. And the, and the third thing he confesses, he falls to the ground, and he says, Naked I came, naked I returned. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, is the absolute sovereignty of God. We don't know how much this man knew, but he knew this, didn't he? He knew that the Lord God was behind all of this that had come to him. Oh, what comfort there is to be able to sing whatever my God ordains is right. To know he doesn't make a mistake, to know that he's not a despot and simply all-powerful, but he's kind, he's tender, he's wise, he's loving. Look how much he loved you, he gave you his son. Oh, what glorious words to be able to believe the Lord gave. What's oh, it's taken away. He's sovereign. He makes no mistakes. You understand that? This is where we must rest. And then, after making this confession, he, he praises God. He praises God. At the very day of, of these relentless climatic announcements, as he lies there in his grief, he praises God. He says, Bless be the name of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice here, he blesses God by the name of the Lord. According to Exodus 3, we don't know how much the older saints knew God by this name. Whether Job used it or whether the writer put it here, it's a deliberate theological insertion by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because the name Lord Jehovah reminds us that he is independent, self-existent, but above all, the personal God who's made covenant with us. He says, blessed be the name of the Lord. He's saying, let it be praised. When we bless God, we see that in Psalm 135. We open by praise, Lord be closed by bless his name. To bless the name of the Lord is merely to ascribe unto him beauty, the glory, the wonder the loveliness, the power, the wisdom of who He is. And to bless the name of Jehovah God. Our catechism teaches us that by name, the Bible means His his names, His titles, His attributes, His word, His work, His ordinance. The name is simply the way God has revealed Himself to us. He revealed Himself to us as Jehovah God, the God of the covenant. The God who saved us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be His name. That's how Job... Overcame. In that great closing line given to us by the Holy Spirit through the writer, through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Literally, ascribe unseemliness to God, which is far more searching. No, he did not blame God, he recognized God was behind it, but basically, God did not act in any way unseemly toward God. Job. Now, he won't always stay right at that place. I wouldn't have either. But uh, here at the climax of the temptation, he praises God. He doesn't curse God, right? So God teaches us how then we respond to these grievous attacks. Keep it in mind that there comes the trials, and uh, with the trials will come always Two ways. There's a way to serve God and to go after Him. And there's a way to go the ways of Satan. And so kids, when you want to say that's not fair, that's what the devil wants you to say when you don't hear or get what you want to hear or get. But kids, what does God want you to say? It's God's will. It's God's will. Blessed be His name. When you get the phone call, when the dishwasher breaks, when the really bad news comes, I don't need this. You get angry with God? Or can you say, It's Jehovah who loves me so much. Let him do what's good in his sight. And we can say this, dear friends, because what we have here is an early defeat of Satan. An early defeat of Satan. You know, I can imagine that Satan at this point was pretty cocky when God gave him this permission. He's thinking back, you know, Adam and Eve were sinless. And I walked in their lives and toppled them and they just fell right over. Now, now Job is, is not sinless. He's, he's got sin in his heart. Uh, he, is going to be a piece of cake. But see what Satan does not understand is that God withheld grace from Adam and Eve because it was his purpose they fall. God gave grace to Satan. And because Christ now has defeated Satan, through this progression as we talked about last week, grace is sufficient for you. In every trial and temptation, you look to Him. You rest in Him. You cling to Christ. You use the means of grace. And God will sustain you in all.